there's been a lot of laughing in the in the secular press. I think that misses the point. I think the big thing is that it normalizes the wearing of an army uniform in Haredi neighborhoods. I think that's a big, big deal, not a little, little deal. And like I said, sociological change takes a long time, a long time. But, you know, it, it drips in. And then over time, it uh, goes on. There's a great saying in uh, Hebrew that uh, silent water is still water, penetrates deeply. I think that's true. And slowly, slowly but surely it'll happen. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Since October 7th, I've said repeatedly that I think that the historical events we're living through are going to lead to a major realignment in many aspects of Israeli and Jewish life. And I'm certainly not alone in that assessment. Venture capitalist Michael Eisenberg has been vocal about some of the changes that he anticipates must take place. Among them, for reasons we'll discuss, the integration of the Haredi community in Israel, both into the Israeli army and more fully into the Israeli economy. Michael, in fact, argues that the past seven weeks and their aftermath represent a biblical-level event, and that the consequences are going to be very far-reaching. Michael and I discussed other areas beyond the ultra-Orthodox population and the military, but that remained the centerpiece of our conversation. After we concluded the interview, I recognized that while he talked about the importance of changing the Haredi attitude towards the army, Michael primarily dealt with the social and economic reasons that this is important. What, however, can we say about their arguments from Torah texts that people who learn should receive military deferments and exemptions? Regardless of whether the current situation is economically and socially acceptable and feasible, it would be difficult for other religious Jews to take a contrary position if the Haredi position has the Torah on its side. To more fully discuss this, I asked my friend Rabbi Yoshua Hirschberg to briefly outline some of the reasons that people who greatly value Torah learning, but who disagree with the Haredi approach, feel that the Haredi reading of these texts is, frankly, mistaken. As I make clear on the podcast, I won't hide my personal viewpoint here for the sake of a fictional type of objectivity. I believe that the current situation where students in Haredi Yeshivot are given essentially a permanent deferment from the army is simply not acceptable. In the four weeks since the start of the ground war against Hamas, 70 soldiers have lost their lives. There's something fundamentally unfair about an entire sector of the population being able to avoid this risk completely, all while claiming that they're fighting and contributing in their own way by learning Torah, when simply put, I don't think that the halachic sources back this up in any convincing way. When we add the question of how much metaphysical assumptions should inform political decisions in a modern state, which, particularly according to the Haredi viewpoint, is not a messianic or redeemed state, the unfairness becomes even more acute. Things really do need to change. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Rabbi Hirschberg first, followed by my interview with Michael Eisenberg. And one final point, my two guests and I are all obviously on the same page. But if you disagree and are comfortable expressing the Haredi viewpoint, please let me know and I'll be happy to have another episode where that viewpoint is offered fairly. We'll start today's episode in a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please read and subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Over the past week, I posted two new articles, 
one entitled The Buck Stops With Thee, Not With Me, addressed the issue of taking responsibility, both on a political and on a religious level. And the other entitled Was God in This Place? No, He Wasn't, deals with the religious idea of people kicking God out of the world, so to speak, and our responsibility to bring Him back in. You can get your free subscription by clicking on the link in the description of this podcast. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rabbi Yoshua Hirschberg has a day job in tech, but is taught at a number of yeshivot in Israel. Rabbi Hirschberg has a special interest in the philosophy of the Rishonim and in the history and development of the Torah Shabalpeh. Michael Eisenberg is a general partner at Aleph, an early-stage venture capital fund with $850 million under management. Michael has published eight books, six in Hebrew and two in English, and lectures on venture capital, Israel, and entrepreneurship. In 2020, Michael established and remains chairman of Navo Network, a fellowship program to elevate immigrants to Israel working in high-tech, and is chairman of Hashomer HaChadash. Rabbi Yoshua Hirschberg, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for having me. So you and I are both individuals who try, I think, to keep the Torah as best we can. I think we both respect Torah scholars. We both respect Torah study. And that's why this conversation, Yoshua, in many ways is a difficult one, because we're arguing against a position which we in some ways fundamentally respect. But I'm putting my cards on the table here. I think that the common ultra-Orthodox attitude towards Torah study, as it is manifested in a demand for exemptions from military service in Israel— it's simply mistaken and incorrect and wrongheaded. And I want to ask you about the history of this idea. We're not going to go through the whole sugya. This is not a shear. This is not a chance to analyze this idea in depth. But I'd like to offer some sources so that people will understand better why people like you and me are against the idea of full-time learners getting exemptions for military service in Israel. So let me throw it out to you, Yoshua. Just begin in terms of the history of this idea. Do you think that this idea has real historical import going way back or is it something that's more recent my my impression i mean if you if you look at the sources that get cited right like the idea that torah is magnumatsly it protects you and it saved you is old okay it's like in the shas and so therefore it's a very very old idea the modern application of that idea though is i would guess you will be very very hard pressed to find any usage of it um, before 50 years ago. And for obvious reasons, because it's not like we had some kind of a Shiloh about drafting <laughs> Jews to fight in a, in, in, a, in a Jewish army. But, uh, you know, that, that being said, you know, like for just for example, okay, when the, when the Gemara talks about Magni Umatli, Rashi says that it means protecting the, the individual from suffering and from 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 sinning. It, it provides a prevention, you know, prevention from sinning. Neither of those things translate into, and that's just an example, right? And none of those things translate into that because Talmud Torah could, could, could protect Kalal Yisrael, therefore that, that that constitutes some kind of exemption from heeding the call for a Mechemes Mitzvah. Okay, and let's talk about Mechemes Mitzvah in a second. One of the main issues against what the Haredi position is, is that Milchamet Mitzvah is an explicit mitzvah in the Torah. This means a war which is mandated, a war for the safety of the Jewish people, which is not an optional war, but a mandatory war. In that situation, the Torah itself gives us specific parameters of who is exempt. And in general, Torah scholars are not in that category. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Sometimes, like, you can quote a source. But, like, in this case, like, there's, like, a sugya, and it's, like, so old that it's in, like, Parshish Shoftim. <laughs> like, that, that's how old the sugya is. And there's a list of things, and they're actually very, 
they're not very spiritual things. They're, they're much more mundane life things. The guy, guy, the guy has unfinished business. It's, it's essentially the, the the common denominator of all those things. Let me give you an example where someone might argue that this is a real source for it, which is halachic. I'll talk about agadic sources in a moment. But it says in Masachet Baba Batra, Davchet Amud Aleph, page 8a, that people who are Torah scholars, Rabbanon, are exempt from certain mundane tasks and from certain taxes. Now, the reason it seems, particularly as this is manifested in the Rambam in Hilchot Hamut Torah, Perak Vav Halacha Yud, 610, the reason is because of either their respect, in other words, they shouldn't go out and dig wells with the rest of the people because we have to respect Hamadei Chacham in a certain way, and in terms of building the wall of a city, which is there to protect, and this is also brought down in Yoridei and Choshen Mishpat, they're exempt from paying taxes for building that wall because their Torah is protecting them. Now, I realize that there's a lot here, and it could be understood in many ways, but if someone were to present that particular source to you, how would you answer that? I'll regal just off the top of your head. I mean, it's, it's very, very weak. It's, it's essentially, right, you're, you're concluding from the fact that somebody gets an exemption from a certain specific tax to, to the fact that they know they don't have to, you know, go out and fight when people's lives are in danger, right? And as you mentioned, right, it's, it's because their Torah is protecting them. It doesn't mean it's protecting the guy next door to them. That's an important point. It doesn't say that, and that to me, the key element here is it does not say that city does not need a wall. It says right. that when the city builds the wall, they don't have to pay for it because they personally are protected, but no one else is. If it had said that particular city with a sizable population of scholars does not need a wall, well, that might be an impressive source, but there is no such Gemara and no such Rambam. Right, exactly. And 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 it, as you said, it doesn't say the city doesn't need a wall, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and that's in line with the previous Gemara that we mentioned where it's implicit that the protection that the Torah provides is for the individual. All right. Now, there are some Gemaras that say that the protection Torah provides is broader. There's a Gemara, Masachet Sanhedrin, that talks about David and his Sartzava, Yoav, saying that if not for David's Torah learning, Yoav couldn't have gone out. And if not for Yoav going out and fighting, David couldn't have learned. On the other hand, I'm not sure how that translates into all Torah scholars protect the Sartzava, the general. It means that the Gadol Hador, the king, his Torah protects it. I'm not sure you can translate that into saying that everybody's Torah protects. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, all you need to say is that it's an agadic source. That's and that sort of ends the conversation. The question is how to interpret that agadic source. And as, as you point out, it's a big jump from the Gadolador to anybody who's sitting in a base medrash. When coming to it, the agadic sources, I think really is, is, is the core issue here, actually, even though it's a halachic question, you know, you opened up with like, obviously, you know, I personally, I have a lot of respect for it sounds even funny when you say it, they like tell me that's an understatement, right? But at the same time, I feel actually that, that, that there's there's a there's a kind of a, a cheapening of these ideas of chazah, because I, w- I would explain it actually through the, the Rambam's famous three groups of people of how they understand Midrashim. So anybody who's learned Midrashim knows that there's a lot of sort of outrageous stuff in Midrashim about, you know, like, Moshe Rabbeinu was 10 amos tall and he jumped 10 amos and he had a sword that was 10 amos and he hit Ogmel Chabashan on his ankle and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and there are three groups of people, three different... Which, by the way, the Nativ takes literally, I believe. But leaving that aside. Oh, really? okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's well, stick to the Rambam now, right? So the, so the Rambam says, you know, there's three groups of people who understand Midrash and one of them says, okay, but if, if it says it, we're going to understand the shot level of the Medrash and we're going to, whatever it says, we're going to take literally. And then he says that that leads people to absurdities. It leads them to believe in, in absurdities. And then there are the people who reject it. 
right? They, they reject the Chazal because it doesn't make any sense. And then there are people who understand that Chazal's function on, on, on I mean, the Raman specifically uses the word mashal, but what he means is that they, they use all kinds of, um, it's clear that when the Ramam talks about Mashalim, he talks about it at length in, in, the, in the Mar Nebuchim, it doesn't mean literally what we call a metaphor. It's all kinds of what he, the Ramam would refer to as uh, as, as mitukham writings, right? Ways of hinting at ideas, ways of covering ideas, ways of expressing things that that can mean two, you know, one thing to one person and another thing to another person. And I, I, I truly believe that the Torah protects people, right? I really actually do, like in a very extreme sense, and it protects the individual. Greatly, and and I think that if you think about it rationally, you can you can see that right from people. And I'm not talking about like a person who learns is less likely to get cancer. I don't know if that's true, right? But a, but a person who's truly devoted to Torah, he has a lot of emotional and practical protection from things that cause a lot of damage, and and that protection is very very real. As as, as the Ramam says in the Maranavuchem that the the, the the greatest hashgacha of God on Klal Yisrael is the fact that He gave them the Torah. The Torah itself is the greatest hashgacha of God. That's one thing. But another thing is, there's no question that Klal has only existed because of the Torah, right? And not just, you know, some people have tried to argue to me that, you know, that was in Golos, and now that we're back in Israel, we don't need any, I mean, that's ridiculous. I, I also don't think the Jews have any future whatsoever without the Torah. And the lack of engagement with Torah and the lack of serious engagement of Torah, in my opinion, should be a prime concern for anybody who cares about Klal and the future of the Jews. And it's easy to understand why, but reducing it to like a magical thing, right? On the one hand, I, A, I, I don't believe it. And I also believe lots of people who say they believe it, don't believe it. Like if a guy was mugging you and you had like a gun, but in your other pocket, you had like a, a pocket mishnayas, okay? No, nobody's <laughs> going to reach for the pocket mishnayas, okay? Like, like, I don't, like, so, so where's the boundary line? Nobody really like believes this, right? But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, reducing it to, to a magical version of itself, right, just makes it, makes you miss the real way in which the Torah protects us. And the real way, by, by the nature of, of the beauty of rational explanations, is that they're easier to believe because they make sense and they don't rely on some leap of faith. I think that's a really important point. And in fact, I will say that for a long time, I've argued that those people who take Midrashim literally are actually doing a disservice to the text. Because if you really want to be a Lamdan, someone who takes Torah seriously, if you look at an Agadita, you look at any piece of anything and just take it literally, and you say, what is it teaching me? It's teaching me the most with Tanamotah. What do you mean? It's telling me a piece of history. Well, that's the end of your learning. You are done. On right, the other right. hand, if you have to figure out what it actually is trying to say, what are Chazal trying to indicate about the character of Moshe Rabbeinu and the nature? What does Ten Amot mean? Which it's a, a very pregnant phrase in Halacha. And what does Og represent? Now the real work begins. It's almost like taking it literally is the easy way out. Right, 100%. There's, there's no question that um, taking it literally is, is the path more traveled. It's the easier path. Yeah, no thorns in the way. Okay, so using that idea, I listed myself today in preparing for our conversation four reasons, and these are not off the top of my head. This is something I've thought about for quite a while, but four reasons that I think that the common ultra-Orthodox understanding of these Gemaras, that these Mamre Chazal, is mistaken. I realize there are very, very important people, far greater than us, Yoshua, who feel differently, which is going to be a question I'll ask you in a moment. But I'm going to give you the four reasons that I summarized over here where I just, I viscerally think that there's a mistake, that it's a mistaken understanding. Number one is what you just said, that with a couple of exceptions, by and large, 
the sources that are often cited in order to say people should be exempt from military service are either agadic statements, meaning non-halachic, non-legal statements, or they're statements from late achronim, from people who are in the past couple hundred years, which, again, in terms of their authority, it's much later. Acknowledging that there are exceptions, like that idea about tax, but they're almost all agadic statements. Second of all, even if we were to only emphasize the halachic gemaras, as you mentioned a moment ago, these halachic gemaras are predicated on the assumption that we are living in a redeemed world, which I'll translate as a time when the divine presence is obvious and there is a direct correlation between our spiritual actions and the physical results. If that doesn't exist, you can't rely on those. In other words, as you put it, if someone's mugging you and you pick up your Mishnayis, not only would you not do that, if you do that, you're foolish. You're pretending you're living in a different world from the world in which we actually live. If you can point to a Gemara, which you can't, that would say to do that, it would be designed for a world which has a shechina inherent in that world. That's the second reason. The third thing is that I think there's, excuse me, but serious hypocrisy here. There are also many Gemaras that talk about how anyone who learns Torah, the weight of old Derech Eretz is taken off of him, the need to work for a living, etc. And they're not talking about getting the government to pay for you. They're talking about spiritual sustenance. And yet the same political parties in Israel, which are constantly begging for legal exemptions from military service, are the same who demand that the government pay for coal salaries. The logic is the same in both cases. You can't say that when it comes to the military, we expect God to help us up. When it comes to personal sustenance, then I have to take matters into my own hands. Now, someone might argue, wait, that's not really fair because the Gemara itself offers different opinions when it comes to personal livelihood. For example, there's a well-known Gemara in Masechet Brachot, Daflam Hay, page 35, an argument between Rabbi Shmael and Rabbi Shimon Yochai about whether someone who learns Torah will have his needs provided for him. And while Rabbi Shimon Yochai says, yes, they will, Rabbi Shmael says they won't, and the Gemara implies that Rabbi Shmael is a more likely scenario. So you might say, look, over there, in that case, the Gemara is clear that one side works and one side doesn't. But that's exactly the point. All of these issues in these various agaditas, these non-legal Gemaras, have opinions on both sides of the aisle. And therefore, you can't pick and choose that in one case, I'm going to assume that God will directly intervene to protect us. And in another case, he doesn't. And the fourth reason is based on something which I sent you today, I've heard people argue, which is that, well, you know what? Bottom line, if there were actually a war, then they would really need us. But in the absence of a war, which obviously is the vast majority of the time, the army doesn't need Haredim. Leaving aside the fairness of this particular issue, what's happened over the past seven weeks has demonstrated the fallacy of that argument. Because when a war happens, there's no advanced warning. It just happens. And when that war takes place, if you aren't already trained in the army, you can't just say, oh, now I'll join. It doesn't work like that. My son is being drafted into the army in about a week. He's not going into Gaza the next day. He's going to have months of training in order to be able to participate. So the argument that should there be a Muhammad Mitzvah Midoraisa, a Torah-mandated war that we have to join, then we'll join, it's too late. Because by the time you join and you can actually fight, the war will presumably be over. Those are my four categories. I'm curious if you want to add anything to that or comment on that. So yeah, th- th- those are great. Okay. So I think the first one we more or less discussed, right? Um, the second one was I think a really important point. And I think also I'd just like to maybe like add something to it. I would go even a, a step further, which is like, you know, like Hashgacha protest as a whole is, is let's call it a sugya. Okay. It's unfortunately a sugya that, 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 that is the, how should we say it is the, the scapegoat of a lot of people's fantasies, right? A lot of, a lot of people want to believe that it is a certain thing and therefore they convince themselves that it is that thing and so on and so forth. But in reality, it's like a sugya that the Rishonim have discussed and so on and so forth. And, and across the board, the, the Ramban has a, a very beautiful uh, uh, statement 
in the Shara Gmol, he, he sort of says, he, gives all, he discusses all these rules of Ashgacha Pratis and Sechar Vaonish and Hazan and how it works and all kinds of stuff like that. And then he says, he says, but, but by the way, like none of this actually will help you to understand why things happen in this world. When something happens, at the end, you just don't know why it happened, right? There's never, we don't know enough about God's Hashgacha to be able to say, even after the fact, right? Oh, you know why that happened? It happened because of X, Y, and Z, right? And we also don't know enough about human beings and so on and so forth. And he says, okay, but so what if you ask me, so okay, so what's, what's the point of discussing all this stuff? And so he says, there's a question of people who, who hate knowledge. So the point of studying Hashgacha is not in order to understand why things happen in the world. It's to understand the Dar Hashem, to understand how God created the world. God created the world with certain systems of, of justice, and studying that is studying God's creation. And, and, and that is a top religious priority. But implicit in all of this is, and, and I, I'm going to argue not just this Ramban, but you would be very hard pressed in any Rishon to find not the claim, beyond the claim that, that you can figure out why things happen, but that you should somehow use your knowledge of how Hashgacha Pratis is supposed to work as a predictive factor in, in halachic or otherwise policy. Right. You can't say, oh, but, you know, like there's, there's no such discussion at best. When something bad happens to you. Right. You need to ask yourself, why? Why did this happen? And you need to do chuva and a person has a right to, to you know, to, to an, an obligation to draw lessons from things that happen. But but like Apia MS, certainly we have no ability to know how our actions are going to affect the ultimate result of things. In other words, you're suggesting that. It's not prescriptive. It is at maximum descriptive of what already happened, but that's it. Yeah, a lot of really big Talmudic were killed in the Holocaust, right? Along with everybody else, okay? And, and the, the, the idea that you can somehow take a bunch of Midrashim that, that imply some kind of protection and then say, oh, no, because of this, it's, it's, it's quite extreme. Regarding your third point about Parnassah, so there's actually, I mean, if we're if we're talking about you know these these sources, so I I I, I looked for it on Shabbos and I couldn't find it, um, but the Nitziv says I, I remember that korbanos make you rich, bringing korbanos makes you rich. He says, but that's different than Torah. The Torah is only magne umatli, it protects you, which means, and and this is beautiful because he's saying something very very rational. It was a time in my life where I, I, I was sort of considering this. It means he said the Torah will, will prevent you from starving. Okay, you're not, nobody's going to learn Torah and become rich, but you're not going to starve to death, right? And like what we're saying is like, you know what? Like, if, if you're willing to make the sacrifice, to be a tamachacham and you know, kachi darkashal Torah and pas demelch tochal and so on and so forth, right? You're not going to starve. Being a scholar is not such a good parnasa, but but you can make it. You can, you can make it. And again, that's an example of somebody who took this exact same gemara and he didn't read it and say, oh, you know what this means? It means that Yeshiva Bacham don't need to go to the army. <laughs> right? yeah, he had a different, more rational understanding of, of, uh, of what that, that meant. And your fourth point, which is that the claim that, oh, when, when there's an actual Pikuach Nefesh, well, that's when, when the war starts, we'll go. But that, that I mean, that, that's, again, as you pointed out, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. You can't, you know, it's essentially saying you're not going to go. Right, it's, and we also see, even though there are some people who are going from the Haredi world, it's not like all yeshiva bochum are now being drafted on mass. It's not happening either. So, in practice, it's also just not true. Right. Okay, Yoshua. As a final question, and this itself could be an entire podcast, and maybe I'll have you back on a different time to talk about this in depth. But just as a way of approaching this now, once again, al regelachat. People might argue that what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but they're still bothered by the fact that you're going up against people who are Gedolei Torah, serious scholars, who say that everything we've said now is wrong. 
Now, again, we're not going to be able to answer all their objections, meaning the way that they see it. But how would you answer somebody who just said to you, can you explain to me how you can go up and disagree with Godolin? So, yeah. Um, so, look, I think in all fairness, OK, there, there are Godolin on both sides of this debate. Right. And I, I have a sort of very complex background, but let's just say I spent a lot of time in, in Haredi yeshivas and, and, and there's a rather sort of circular uh, definition of what is a gadol, but let's say you're you're not trapped in a circular definition in which you assume that a gadol is a certain let's say level of of Torah expertise, right? The reality is that there are plenty of people who are on very very comparable levels on both sides of this debate. Now there are going to be three groups of people. There are going to be the people who are okay following the people from their community. So if I am a, a dati lumi guy and I like. Rav Yaakov Ariel and Rav Aaron Lichtenstein and, and a whole bunch of others, then I, I and I say, look, I'm, I'm okay trusting that I trust them. So that's what I'm going to do. And the same is true for people who are Haredi. And they say, look, I'm going to I'm going to follow, uh, you know, Roshach or whatever it is, right? They're going to do that, and 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 they're okay with that. And I think the, the, the people we we want to address are the people in the middle, and so to speak, the the, the the perplexed in the middle, who see, okay, wait a second, this is uh, you know an argument between great scholars, right? And in, in such a situation, you have no choice but to engage with this issue yourself and look at the sources and make up your own mind and think about the reasonings. And, and, and you know, and you, you know, the, if, you re, if you really want to, you can go to the gadolim of each side and say, how are you going to explain this and that? And, you know, and it's, it's but it, in the end, it, it falls that each person is going to decide. You can't, you know, control that. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yoshua, a lot more to discuss in future episodes. And I appreciate you joining me today to provide some clarity. Rabbi Yoshua Hirschberg, thank you. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Michael Eisenberg, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you. What a name, Orthodox Conundrum. Wow. I do my best. Now, the events of October 7th and the aftermath that we're going through are going to have repercussions for Israel and across the Jewish world for years. I'd like to talk about some of them today. But as a way of opening up, Michael, I'd actually like to quote a translation or a free translation of a tweet that our mutual friend Dina Rabhan sent me that you wrote on November 7th. It was a Hebrew tweet, and this is my English translation of it. It says something like this. Today we're in a time of war where hundreds of thousands have been called up to the military. We know that this war will be long, perhaps even years long, and it's already possible to estimate that in the medium term, the army will have to get bigger and the price of national security will increase in the medium long term. At some point, a front on the north will develop. The police force also needs to grow. Of course, the state funds the salaries of reservists and pays the salaries of regular soldiers, but the real expense is multiples of that. All of the reservists have left their work and are not producing for the economy. Given that the army needs to get larger, locking up part of the economically productive population for the sake of national security will severely damage the economy. We must acknowledge that the Haredi population, with its lower productivity, will not make up the difference. There is a time for war and a time for peace, a time to learn and a time to work. Therefore, my brothers, the Haredim, must make a change sharply and quickly. My brothers, the Haredim, you must join the army, the home front command, and the police and support the defense of the country. You also need to get an education and support the economy. There are over 200,000 Haredi men between the ages of 18 and 25, which is approximately half the number of reservists called up to the army. The productivity of Haredim who work is about 60% lower than that of men who are not Haredi because of the educational gaps. It is necessary to immediately implement a process of binary change in the spirit of Kohelet. That was part of what you wrote 
in that tweet. So I'd like to open up talking about what you said there, this contention that because the Israeli army needs to expand and because the economy needs additional productive workers, that frankly, the Haredim simply have to drop the way they've been dealing with the army for the past decades and longer and join the army. So my opening question is, do you think by and large here in Israel, that the ultra-Orthodox population has any interest in heeding the call that you're making now? Because certainly on a political level, they seem extremely reluctant to do anything of the sort or worse. So, um, you know, by the way, you called this the Orthodox conundrum, right? You know, you, you launched into just about the, you know, meatiest matter that's that's out there. And so uh, thanks for warming me up with some softballs. <laughs> you're very uh, welcome, Michael. Your personal comfort is obviously my number one priority. I've had the fortune since the war started, but, but you know, also much before uh, of, of speaking to many younger Haredim, people who are, you know, studying technology now, but not only I gave, I gave a sheer about uh, three weeks before the war on the topic of whether the economy is Doche Shabbat. Uh, we're, we're familiar with Pikuach Nefesh Doche Shabbat. Uh, I've written uh, together with a Chavruta, I've written a, a Tshuva on whether uh, the economy is Doche Shabbat. Uh, based on what happened, we've forgotten about it already when Silicon Valley Bank uh, crashed on Shabbos. So I gave I gave, I gave a shear. We have a shear in the Haredi Yeshiva actually, uh, which was fascinating on, on on this topic. And so I've had uh, a lot of connectivity and, and dialogue and and speeches I've given with younger Haredim. And it's my view that the uh, younger Haredim are eager for a change, and they're eager to take responsibility and become a part. Uh, of the state of Israel, of the economy, and in some cases, as we've seen since the war started, even the army. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the Askanim, as the case may be, and the Rabbanim are still playing the movie of uh, 25, 30, 50 years ago. Um, you know, as has happened many times in history, it's not, it's not unusual to the time we're in today. And so uh, I think we have an opening now. I think we're at a new time. And that, that's kind of the uh, say tov, uh, part of it. There is a Surmera part of it also, which is um, there's a day of reckoning coming. Uh, you know, the, the, the economy of the state of Israel is about a half a trillion right now, which is significantly bigger than it was uh, 50 years ago. But with that uh, growing economy, there's been growing uh, expenses for what they call here transfer payments. We call it America welfare payments. We, we can't keep supporting that if we have significant numbers of the most productive people in the economy called up for reserves, if we need gonna need more people in the military over time, which means that expense base, my guess is gonna at least double uh, over time, whether it's the military or the police or home front command. And so uh, it's gonna become necessary because otherwise uh, just, you know, I, I'm a big believer that uh, the economy sits just about above all because it dictates a lot of things. Technology dictates change, uh, the economy, dictates where we spend our money and the priorities that, that we invest in. And then there's, you know, ideology and religion, et cetera, which, which, which kind of guides the meta, uh, the meta goals and what people are willing to sacrifice for each of those other things. And so um, the, the economic realities are going to dictate that we need to make change. And uh, that's just a fact. And many of the recipients of the transfer payments today or the welfare payments are Haredim themselves. Okay, Michael. Now, I agree with you. If I were to take the Haredi position, however, at least the oft-stated Haredi position, they will say, and you mentioned before this meta-goal of religion that sets perhaps the framework in which economics operates and in which the military operates too, they would say, however, that our job in learning Torah 
and our getting military deferments isn't actually a real deferment from the military. We are the reason that the military even is able to work because our spiritual exercise is actually giving strength to the soldiers. As we learn in yeshiva, we are actually part of the army in our own way. That's kind of what they say. Again, I don't personally accept that argument, but how would you respond to someone who says that what you're saying is very nice, but it's a violation of their viewpoint? Uh, so there, there's, there's, there's a few things uh, to be said here. You know, number one, there's going to be probably a commission of inquiry uh, set up at, when this war is all said and done to investigate the politicians and the heads of the army. If, if what you said now is to be taken at face value, I, I would assume that they'll haul in all of the Russia yeshiva because this notion of Torah Magne Umatzle clearly failed on Simcha's Torah morning. I actually wrote an article about that about two or three days ago. So, so if there's if there's partnership in the defense, that would be the case. By the way, funny story, like two weeks into the war, I got a call, maybe a week and a half, I got a call from a well-known uh, Haredi person uh, in this country. He says, hey, maybe you have an idea of some Hezder Yeshiva where guys were called up because the Haredi Yeshiva in Ofakim needs a place to go because, you know, it's dangerous in Ofakim. So I wrote to him afterwards. I thought Torah Magne Omatzle, you know, so they can move it to Gaza, to Gaza. But needless to say, I didn't get an answer. So I, I think that's that's kind of you know one one side of it. I think there's another side is which, which uh, I often uh, joke that even though we daven I'm a chadesh every morning we actually don't believe that. Um, which is because most people get up the next morning because they think tomorrow is going to look like the previous day. And if we knew that tomorrow was going to be so different from today, uh, it would drive us crazy. Um, so people actually don't believe I'm a chadish betuvo b'choyom tamid ma'asev reishis. No, tomorrow is kind of like today. But in fact, there are periods in history where in particular tomorrow doesn't look like today. And I believe we were already in the middle of something like that, uh, particularly since COVID. Um, and I have proof of that, which I'll give you in a second. Um, but it has been accelerated dramatically. But I mean dramatically uh, since the war started. I'm getting this on inbound from, from Haredim. Uh, and also on outbound. But I wrote this scathing letter two days ago against this uh, Rav Bunim Schreiber, who said uh, absolutely disgusting things about uh, the Medina and, and Chayle Tzal. I wrote this piece, and I got a lot of, for the first hour or two, like, what do you expect? He goes, a different thing. And he said, you know, no shots and poskim and, and, and this, that, and the other. And some other people said, oh, it takes a lot of courage to attack uh, a guy like that. You know, it was irrefutable, the kind of manipulative narratives that this that this man so to speak a Rosh Yeshiva was using and I attacked and I spread it absolutely everywhere and the thing went totally viral anyway within two days uh, he published a non-apology apology in the Ated Neman uh, in which he said that my stuff was uh, my, my words were quoted out of context by the way I watched the whole speech they weren't quoted out of context at all I didn't watch the social media thing I don't, I don't respond to people based on snippets on social media I try to do the full work and and, and read everything and then a Haredi member of Knesset, Moshe Arbel, came out and basically censored him as well, and everybody has distanced himself. What does this tell you? It tells you that Haredim are on social media because they were super sensitive to what was going on social media. And that WhatsApp, which is on every Haredi's phone at this point, okay, is whipping these things around at rapid pace. I wrote a piece about Haredim, I don't remember, two months ago. A friend called me back. A friend called me, you know, a day or two later. He says, it's like the most viral... Uh, Piece on the on the nice groups on which like the news groups and in Haredi WhatsApp they're getting everything and so the world has opened up technology opens it up they're sensitive and they, they're correct to be sensitive 
And I, I think the last thing is, is that this younger group of Haredim has real koichas. These are ambitious people who need education, who want to become a part of the state of Israel. Not all of them, um, but want to become a part of it. And I, I think they're going to force from the bottom up. And the world has changed. The world used to be much more top down. It's today much more bottom up. And I think the pressure is coming from the bottom. And when you see people like this, who have Bunim Schreiber, his ideas are goises, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're grassroots straws. When you see the Askanim trying to kind of pressure this, it means that they're goises. It's something hanging on for the, for the last, it's okay. Things take time. They do. It's history doesn't happen in one minute. Sociological change doesn't happen in one minute. But you have decades where nothing happens, and then a year when a decade happens. I think we're in one of those years now. Okay, that's very hopeful, and I certainly hope you're right. I'm going to push back and say another possibility of what's happening, which is that the Askanim and the others who are pushing back are not pushing back because they agree with what you're saying. They're pushing back specifically to avoid the conclusions that you're coming to. In other words, when somebody says something which people will look at as beyond the pale, as way too extreme, they want to push back so that they can remain within the window, within the framework, and therefore they can say, no, we value the army, we value the state of Israel, but obviously we have to do our part in learning. Because once you go too crazy, so to speak, then your whole argument gets undermined. So maybe the pushback is just to try and maintain the status quo, while at the same time, not sounding and using the same sound bites that they did in the past. Scott, so the, uh, you're right. That is the pushback of the Askam and the Rabbanim, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. You know, there'll be people who pay lip service to it, but there is what my, uh, my Haredi friend, uh, no, I won't quote him by name because I shouldn't get him in trouble, calls Likui Morot, right? At the, rabb- at the rabbinic level right now, and you see this also, by the way, uh, today, uh, someone sent me a recording of the Rosh Shiva of Mir in America, uh, attacking without name what, what Rav Aaron Feldman did about not sending guys to the to the protest rally or the or the positive rally in in, in Washington D.C. The Haredi world is not monolithic anymore. It's not like the Chazanish is around anymore. And uh, when you get larger, I've said for years and years and years and years uh, you can, that the demographic scare tactics that people have used about Haredi I've thought are wrong. As units get larger, they get more cracks. They have more surface area. Uh, they crack more, and, and that's going on right now. And so they are pushing back exactly for the reasons that you say. But as time goes on, uh, they will be they will be less influential. And this, you know, this friend of mine says, "Likui Marot." I was in a meeting. We set up uh, as part of the war effort right now something called the Mishmer. As part of chair, the largest volunteer organization is what's called the Shomer Chadash. Uh, we protect farmers and ranchers, send people to uh, do farm work, etc. And as part of the Effort since the war, we've been helping set up what are called Kitot Konanut or, or you know, ready units inside of uh, Yishuvim. And, and unfortunately, because uh, so few Haredim do the army, they're not trained with weapons and not trained in, in defense. And, you know, it's a big scare that, you know, God forbid uh, somebody should take advantage of this weakness in the Haredi community and there'll be another massacre. It's terrible. So we quickly jumped into action and we've been training Kitot Konanut, these ready classes in Haredi neighborhoods. And people are signing up uh, uh, by the droves. And you now this conversation is to, does it need rabbinic imprimatur or no? You know. Then let me ask you another question on that same topic, because in another tweet, I saw you wrote to Javier Knesset Moshe Gaffney. I, I don't know if you responded, but he there was a video around Sukkot and you said on Twitter, I invite you to meet me anywhere. I don't have the exact language here, but meet me anywhere, my sukkah, your sukkah, Beit Midrash, to discuss why if we don't change the way that the Haredi world is operating, not only will it be bad for Israel, but the Haredi community itself will collapse. Can you explain what you mean by that? It's the same point, which is, 
Um, I mean, part of my uh, uh, issue with Goffney is uh, that he talks about things he doesn't fully understand economically. He wanted to try to create differential interest rates for people on houses with high leverage on them, meaning his electorate, uh, and was taking on the governor of the Bank of Israel and, and threatening the independence. And we all know that the stability of the economy depends on having an independent governor of the Bank of Israel. We, we could have an argument, which I'm sure many economists would, about is as the policies of the government bank has been good or bad, I think they've been good for what it's worth. Um, but we can't argue as to whether the independence is important for certainly the impression of, of economic stability uh, in this country. But Haredim in particular are not asset owners, they're more employees. And uh, inflation, which Gaffney was suggesting didn't need to be tackled with uh, rising interest rates uh, or raising interest rates, um, uh, hits particularly hard on people who are salaried employees because their salaries are less elastic than the cost of goods. Uh, and inflation hits the cost of goods and services very hard, whereas your salary stays in place. And so when he was arguing for, for easy, more easy money policy into uh, an inflationary environment, uh, my suggestion was is that he was actually hurting his electorate through his populism rather than helping them. And so, you know, I, you, know I, you can't expect every member of Knesset to be... Uh, economically savvy. I would expect them, though I know better than that by now, having been here for 27, 28 years, I would expect them not to speak about things that they don't have any idea about what they're talking about. But we all know that that is not the way the politics works over here. Yeah, not just here. I don't think it works that way in many, in many places. Certainly in the era of social media, as we keep joking, you know, people go from being COVID experts to being election experts to being war experts and ballistic missile experts. And so, uh, you know, God bless let me ask you a question then. What do you think is the more pressing concern right now, that Haredim joined the army or Haredim joined the economy in a better way, in a more productive way? Which is the more pressing issue if you had to choose one that is really important for Israel today? The, the, the economy. Uh, one is because I think it's more realistic in the short term. Um, and people, when they're 25, can join the economy. It's harder to join the army uh, at that age. Uh, and number two is we're going to have to pay for this war and the increased uh, defense expenditures. And every significant increase or even minimal increase in Haredi productivity uh, makes a significant contribution at this point uh, to, to the economy. Moreover, I think it spills over to their kids. Um, and it has kind of trickled out effects in, in a couple of ways. One is it reduces the amount of uh, transfer welfare payments that, that you need into that sector. Uh, number two, it increases the tax base out of that sector. Three, I think it increases agency, and agency is critically important. And four, it makes their kids want some of those improvements in lifestyles also. And I think, I think that's uh, that's super important. What is going on that's interesting though is you have all these quote unquote Haredi celebrities from Arye Derry's son, a guy named Yaki Adamker, to I think Arye Ehrlich, the Haredi uh, journalist, and a few others who have signed up for the army. And you know, there's been a lot of laughing in the in the secular press at the fact that they're signing up for what's called Shlav Bet or Gimel, whatever it is here. Uh, and they're going to do two months and then some reserve duty or two weeks and then some reserve basic, basic training. Uh, I think that misses the point. I think the big thing is that it normalizes the wearing of an army uniform in Haredi neighborhoods. I think that's a big, big deal, not a little, little deal. And like I said, sociological change takes a long time, a long time. But, you know, it, it drips in. And then over time, uh, goes on. There's a great saying in uh, Hebrew that uh, silent water is still water penetrates deeply. I think that's true, and slowly, slowly but surely it'll happen. Yeah, I understand what you mean. And this social taboo 
is a big thing to overcome. We can't forget what happened a few years ago, this Hardak campaign, which was a major attempt in certain Haredi communities to really, really vilify anybody in the Haredi world who joined the army. So let's hope that you're right. Now, Michael, I'd like to move out of the topic of Haredim and the army and the economy and make it a little bit broader because... Oh, everything's now a softball after that one. <laughs> Let's hope so. October 7th, Simchat Torah, what happened then and what's happened since then has created a brand new situation. You said that quite explicitly, and I fully agree. There's going to be some sort of realignment. There are going to be major changes in many spheres, I think politically, I think religiously, I think in many different areas of Israeli society, things are going to change radically. We don't have any idea yet how that's going to be. A shock like this will make that change. And I'd like to ask you about your vision, Michael, for larger Israeli society. What sorts of changes that have been set in motion by October 7th? Now, obviously, Nothing is worth October 7th. I don't want to be misunderstood. I wish there were no changes and October 7th had never happened. Now that it's happened, though, and things are going to change, if you could set forward a vision of how you'd like Israel to look different when all this is over, when the war is in the rearview mirror, whatever that means exactly, and we can move forward, what's your thoughts about the vision for Israeli society? So I think it's first important to take a step back and, and acknowledge uh, that the massacre of October 7th, the Simchas Torah massacre of, of October 7th, uh, at least in my view, is a biblical level event. This is not, you know, what, what we, I've been walking around calling it a Ruat Tanachi. I have a friend, uh, general, former general in the army, Gershon Cohen, is a Tanach expert in addition to everything else, Alamdan. And, uh, you know, early on, he and I talked about how this is really a biblical level event. It's, it's a cataclysm, not just for Israel, but for what's going on in the world. I mean, you look in the streets of London and Paris and New York and the ripping down of American flags and, uh, you know, the ripping of British flags and the chance going on, what's going on at campuses around, around the United States and the world. This is a biblical level event, not just for the Jewish people. And it needs to be acknowledged as such. And I don't mean to be overdramatic, but I think when you say vision for Israel, I don't think that it stops there. I think this is a vision for what the Western world wants to stand for. And candidly, I'll, I'll argue it might be a bigger event for diaspora jury than it is for Jews in Israel for a variety of reasons. You know, something we see coming out of this is a lot more solidarity on the part of diaspora jury among itself and between diaspora jury and, and, and Israel. And, you know, for argument's sake, if you have people on the so-called left in America or part of the progressive movement who now turn on them and their Jewish identity has now emerged, uh, due to what happened on October 7th, and the people they thought were friends turned on them and became anti-Semites, you're, you're looking for a new home, and this is cataclysmic. You know, all of a sudden discovering, for example, that in the uh, curriculum of the high schools of Atherton, California, which there are plenty of Jews, there's all sorts of, you know, almost pro-Hamas or, or Palestinian uh, narratives that are being fed to your kids, and the educational system in California has been uh, overwhelmed by by wokeism and, and you know, this kind of decolonialization and, and anti-Semitic narratives, you've got some reconsidering to do there of, you know, biblical proportions. And so I think we're in a dramatic moment and you overlay on that. I, I don't believe this is short. Like I've said, you've heard, you, you quoted me saying it. I think we're in a multi-year uh, conflict now that comes around about every 80 years. It's, if you kind of go back in history, it's either 40 or 80 years roughly, but there's a cycle of these things and they take a long time. And 
once every 80 years or so, history changes pretty dramatically. And I think we're in the middle of that period or right at the beginning of that period right now. I think it started with COVID. And I think three years in, we have two major wars already. We have Ukraine and Russia. And now we have Gaza uh, and Israel. Um, the Iranians are rearing their head and trying to cause a lot of trouble. You see the, the Houthis in Yemen. And so we need to recognize that this is that this is biblical. Now, from every every challenge like this uh, comes opportunity. You know, you think about the emergence of Zionism. Emergence of Zionism comes after the basic beginning of the creation of nation states across Europe. And, you know, Herzl, what Herzl had uh, that was lost on many others was he had conceptual supremacy over others. He said, forget about the shtetl, forget about the community. We can create a state. If everyone's creating a state, we can create a state. And he was early enough that the winds of history that were set in motion and then lifted him uh, on the wings of eagles and ultimately landed us in Israel. You know, people mocked the Uganda idea. The Uganda idea, which wasn't a good one necessarily, but what it did say was, we have a state like everybody else is gonna have a state in this wave of states coming to be. Uh, I think at the same time right now, we're in a fractionalization process going on where tribalism is ascendant. Um, you see that also in the ruptures within societies. Uh, you can call it red and blue in America, progressive versus conservative, and many other sub-tribals. You know, in Israel, you had what happened on the judicial reform, but even before that, uh, the, the, the horrible speech of President Rivlin here about the four tribes of Israel, uh, which I thought was, was a terrible narrative, uh, quite candidly. But, but that's, that's the period we're in right now. And so uh, the question becomes, I'm actually writing this in my, in my next book now, in, in, in my, my book, my Sefer on Vayikra called Shevet Shoeg, I describe this notion of respectful tribalism. And in the book on Dvarim, which I'm in the middle of trying to get out, it's been held up by the war, to be honest, because uh, I'm struggling to find time to, to keep editing it uh, to get to the point where I want, is this notion of, of, of Israel uh, as the place that has a set of beliefs and values which amalgamate the tribes, which are necessary for identity purposes, into a vision for the future. And uh, that vision for the future, in my mind, is, is Abrahamic. Dvarim, you'll see this in my book, closes the loop back to Parshas Lechacha and Parshas Vayera, uh, back to Abraham Avinu. Um, and the notion is that we should be a source of blessing, of bracha, which is material wealth and power for the rest of the world. And we have had an issue with power, by the way, you see this in the Haredi world in particular, but not only, we've had an issue with power due to 2,000 years of exile of Galut. We've had an issue with aspiring to be bracha, because who are we? But I think now that we are embedded in our natural region, uh, which is here, and we have the beginnings of the Abraham Accords, just like uh, Abraham Avinu had uh, an Erish Golim Mamre, and Abraham Avinu had a message from God of Veheye uh, Bracha, and to call out in a single God's name. And this is a region of a single God, by the way. We should point that out. Different uh, reflections of it, but a single God. Um, and a uh, monotheistic God. We, we have an opportunity to show how uh, technology can be used for good, how wealth can be used to empower the brother, as the word ach appears many times, both in Sefer Vayikra and in, in, uh, in Dvarim and Deuteronomy. And uh, I think that's, we want to create an economy that is a model for the whole world. It's part of my call out to Haridim also, that is based on Torah values. It doesn't have to be Torah or Halacha, but it must be based on the same set of values, updated and modernized for what's going on in the world now. That's exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu did in, in, uh, in Sefer Dvarim, Ho'il Moshe Be'eres HaTorah Azos. Moshe uh, explained and updated the Torah for the uh, interaction 
uh, with real life that would happen in, in the land of Israel. And I think that's what we're up to now. 75 years into the state of Israel, we'll put that same vision together for the next 150 years. Sorry for the long answer. No, that's great. I like that very much. In fact, two weeks ago, I had Micha Goodman on, who spoke about those same ideas in Sefer Devarim as Moshe, sort of using the same ideas that had been presented in the other books of the Torah for a new reality as they're about to enter the land. So I definitely relate to that idea. I want to comment on a couple of things you said. The first question is when you talk about Eruah Tanachi, this is a biblical event. Yeah. And I certainly agree with that, but I'd like to know exactly what you mean by that. If you don't mind going back to that, a good friend of mine named Rabbi Pesach Wiliki often says, sort of with a smirk and a smile, says, you don't know when you're in an Eruah Tanachi. He said, when people were crossing the Red Sea after they were escaping Paro in the Mitzrim, one guy didn't you know, elbow the guy next to him and said, hey, we're in the Bible. That's not how we think. What does it mean to be in a biblical event? What does that mean to you? Uh, I think Rabbi Wiliki is basically correct in that we tend to call wars what they, uh, the name we call them only afterwards, right? Nobody in the middle of uh, World War I knew it was really World War I, so to speak. Um, and so we, we tend to look back and, and, and are able to, to call them things that sound like they're biblical in nature. But I'll tell you what I mean. Um, and, I, and I think why we can, even at this point, confidently say uh, that we're in a biblical nature. Um, there's a word in Hebrew, which is taken from it, it's called the conceptia, or the concept, right? The, the Israeli army's concept of Gaza and Hamas in particular has fallen. Uh, that's kind of uh, number one. And that is a concept that has been entrenched probably since 1967, and maybe since 48, and, and definitely since uh, 1993. The, the other thing is this, this is on some level a religious war, right? Because Hamas is at least perverted religiously motivated. Uh, in a perverse way. I, I know many Muslims who don't care for Hamas, so I wouldn't call it Islamic, but there is a certain violent jihadi uh, notion to what Hamas is propagating that is you know, posted against uh, Israeli, Jewish, uh, and Western values here. And that's why they clearly say, we're coming for the Christians next, or we're coming for the West next, it doesn't stop here. And so I think that kind of uh, narrated war of civilizations is, is, is very meaningful. Uh, three, this is the most Jews killed in one day since the Holocaust. And by the way, probably a long time before that, everyone talks about the pogrom of Kishinev, but not this many people were killed on the, uh, in the pogrom of Kishinev either, nor obviously in, uh, in Tarpat in 1929 in Hebron. This is many more people. And, you know, it's, it's been off compared to Pearl Harbor or, or 9-11. Uh, you know, this is dramatic, even more than that. You know, we moved 120,000 people out of their homes. That's like moving like... 10 million people out of their homes in America, whatever the number is, like you cleared out Wyoming and Montana and, and, you know, and Idaho, you know, from all their populations. And so, you know, that in itself makes a more biblical moment. And then I think more than anything, more than anything, is that when you walk around this country today and talk to people, there is an awakening. There's both what I would call a pall of sadness, of anger, and some levels of Despair and frustration also, those are not the same things, obviously. And then there's an awakening going on that on a few levels. Uh, one is, you know, we're too small a country to leave the public service to, to, to middling people who are kind of enslaved to cons consensus. Uh, number two, wow, what amazing kids we have. I wrote this in another tweet that you didn't quote from that's gone totally viral apparently on WhatsApp. You know, we, we all had concerns, I'm sure you did too, that the, the generation of screens of iPhones would find kids who have brain rot on him. But wow, did our Israeli kids prove that this is wrong. 
Our kids are incredible. I, I call this the defining generation because it's the break point in the digital era between those that get it and those that don't. Those are willing to fight for life and liberty. Those who know what it's worthwhile dying for, and we all die. It's just inevitable. And, and those that don't. And there's a lot of what I call TikTokism and upside downism and brain rot going on in American universities in the iPhone generation, not only obviously in other parts of the world. Our Israeli kids are healthy. That's what we've discovered. They're not just healthy, they're motivated and inspired. And when you see a break like that, when you see people, kids, kids, that's our future is our kids willing to stand up and do something about it, you'll know we're in a biblical moment. This is a defining generation for the digital era and it's inspiring. I, I, I find myself humbled, humbled, mamash humbled with the amount that we have to learn from our kids here in Israel. I'm breathtaking, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. They have taught the entire world. And I don't care if you live in Teaneck or Los Angeles or Miami and you think your kids are doing great, they're not doing as great as these kids. They have broken free from the screens. They've broken free from the here and now. And they said, for Netzach Yisrael, we know what to do. For the Western world, we know what to do and what we'll be out there. I'll tell you one thing. Yesterday, I spent the morning, returned it to most of the day in the South. I was in uh, Kfaraz and Beirut and where the party was and many other places uh, yesterday morning. And it's, it's heavy. Okay? It's heavy. I have a friend uh, who was wounded in, uh, in Beirut. Um, they probably heard I had a cousin who was killed. Uh, it was the first, first forces to arrive in Kfaraza. Uh, I have a friend who was wounded in Beirut. And we were in Beirut yesterday, a bunch of us. We went down. And uh, we called him because uh, one of the friends recognized from the way the injured guy who, who was in Sheba Hospital had told the story. He, he recognized where we were based on that. We called him up and said, hey, uh, is this where you were? We turned on the video on WhatsApp and he walked us through and we recorded it. How he came in from the back fence, they made a hole in the fence to, you know, approach the Hamas guys who were already in Beirut from the back how we set up an ambush of 20 people to take down the reinforcements that came. And then they went house to house and cleaned out the Hamas terrorists. Okay. The courage, the bravery, they went down into a totally unknown environment and the, the willingness to sacrifice on behalf of the civilians of Kali Israel. It's just like, wow, I was sitting there listening to guy, how he's younger than I am significantly even to how small a person am I compared to this person? This is the Galador. He's the Galador, him and all these other guys. And he went house to house to house and cleaned the terrorists out of the house. And he told us in this room and in this house, and he was taking us through. I mean, this guy went through a trauma. He said, wow, this is a defining generation. Wow, the Heshiv Levavot Albanim is really something that you're expressing right now. That's very hopeful. Michael, let me ask you about something else that you mentioned before about how we have to create material wealth and power, but we have to do it based on Torah values. To a certain degree, Israel has already been achieving material wealth and power over the past decades. So what would change now? In other words, if we do look at this period that began on October 7th as the beginning of some sort of realignment and a change in the way we do things, what does it mean that we would add Torah values to what we've been doing now? What, in other words, would be different from what has happened on October 6th and beforehand? Like many things in history... Uh, first, I know what I should say is that I have an upcoming piece in tradition in the next issue of tradition on exactly this topic. Uh, and thanks okay. to uh, Jeffrey, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, who is the uh, 
publisher, I think an editor also of tradition for including me. We had a symposium. There was a symposium, I think in the summer on uh, times like a, a learn out, but there was a symposium in the summer, I think, uh, on material wealth in the U.S. Jewish community. I was the only guy invited from Israel, so I picked a slightly different topic. Anyway, so um, he, uh, so I have this piece coming in tradition, but like everything in history, movements start before and then get accelerated by events in history. And I think already you've seen a, a movement of Israeli entrepreneurs towards what I call values creating value or what I've been calling covenantal capitalism uh, in the Israeli economy. Uh, it's how we empower people to do better as a core part of the business model of our business. And in the piece in tradition, which everyone's invited to read, uh, I describe how this is based on uh, not just kind of nary fairy tale values, but you see it in the psukim, the psukim about Avram in particular, but not only in the in the midst of Shemitah Sksafim, uh, forgiving of loans uh, at the end or, uh, of the Shemitah year, um, how you see this in uh, in the midst of Lotachmod uh, and others. And uh, I think the Torah actually does have an economic model. It's neither capitalism nor socialism, uh, but it's rather it says that you should be investing in other people to empower them to own assets on their own. Uh, so that they can create material wealth and be self-sufficient. It's beyond what the Ramam says is the highest uh, degree of tzedakah, the highest degree of charity, uh, which is to, to do business with someone. That's a subunit of, of what I think is the Torah philosophy on, on business and the economy. Let me ask you about something specific, and perhaps you don't want to answer this, or perhaps you don't have an opinion on it. But one thing that has bothered me about the Israeli economy slash power, this is in some ways where it intersects, is when we have arms sales to tin pot dictators and to countries that would be, let's just say, not covenantal, as you would describe yeah. them. And I think that on the one hand, perhaps we could say it's excusable. Israel needs all the friends it can get. It can't start making enemies. On the other hand, selling arms to people who are going to use them for potentially nefarious purposes like hurting their own population is a very, very big problem, certainly from Jewish values. Do you think that's something that has to stop and to change? So... um uh, I unfortunately don't know enough about that uh, to have to have an opinion. Uh, I don't know enough about that. I think uh, generically, uh, Israel has taken uh, too much of a realpolitik approach on many topics and needs to take a more principled approach. Uh, I thought this was true. I wrote about this at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war. I thought it's very obvious where we should be. I understood the realpolitik about it, but I thought we should we should be more clear, particularly as the people who suffered through the Holocaust and that kind of aggression. Uh, from the an aggression from from Arab countries and enemies, I still believe that to be true, and so I think we need to have a more principled and values approach over time in in general. Okay, I know you have to go, Michael. So I appreciate your time. This has been yeah. very very hopeful and enlightening, and I appreciate your time. And I hope we'll have you back again. Thanks so much for joining me today. And we should have only besorot tovot, and uh, Am Yisrael should know to kind of get itself together uh, as a group and be you know rolling the oars in the same direction. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. 
You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.